Well, good evening. I know we still have some folks coming in, but we're going to go ahead and get started. We are continuing our series on lessons from the Holy Land. I'm really excited about these sites. We're going to go to a different part of Israel uh, today, and next week we'll go to yet another uh, part, a completely different uh, geography in Israel. If you're wondering about our backdrop, Crossing School has a uh, fiddler on the roof, and uh, I won't... Uh, coming performance, so this is part of their backdrops, and I won't be doing anything out of that, or really even referring to it in any way, so. Hey, you know, to text in your questions during class, there's the number, so just text in any questions that you have. There's a good little modern map of Israel, and you kind of see the modern politics of Israel, and it's really interesting because if you notice on the left-hand side, the Gaza Strip which is uh, you know, under, uh, not under Israeli control. Well, you could argue that, but basically they, is, Israel uh, yeah, does not control that part of the country. But that's the part of the ancient area of the Philistines, and we're going to talk about them now. And it's just kind of interesting when you see the ancient maps, a modern map, and you go, boy, not that much has changed. And uh, in fact, in terms of conflict, not that much has changed. Well, let's go back in to history. This is a an older map. I hope you can see this okay. I'm going to put the arrows up there because I don't expect you to be able to read all the cities there. But basically, this is Israel uh, during the time that we're going to talk about. Throughout the Old Testament times into New Testament time, this geography hasn't changed much. And let's just recap where we've been. We started down here in the south of Israel in the desert of Zin, down in the Negev. And you remember we talked about the Israelites coming out of Egypt approximately 1400 BC and wandering, not wandering because they're lost, but spending about 38 years in that part of, the, of Israel. So we talked about the Israelites coming out of Egypt and God getting Egypt out of the Israelites. Then we moved on over to the Dead Sea area. We talked about Masada, we talked about the springs at En Gedi, and you saw we were still in that desert area and a lot of history a lot of Israel's history occurred in these desert areas, and there's just a lot of meaning to that. Well, in this lesson, we're going to move over towards the coast, and if you remember, there are kind of four geographical bands in Israel. By the coast of the Mediterranean Sea is a coastal plain, very prime real estate. It's where the Philistines lived in the south, it's where the Phoenicians lived in the north, and Israel failed to conquer that. And so the prime coastal plain Israel didn't inhabit in the time period we're going to talk about. Then moving east toward the Dead Sea, toward the Sea of Galilee, you come into what's called the Shephelah or the low hills. I'll show you those in a minute because that's where our story's going to be. Then the uh, mountains, there's a mountains that run all the way from the south to the north, the Judean wilderness of the Judean mountains, and then down into the Dead Sea and the Jordan River Valley, which is way down, and it's a kind of part of a big rift valley. So as you go from west to east, you go through different kinds of terrain. We're going to be, uh, one of our sites will be in what's called a Zika. It's not on this map, but it's right there by Gath, right where that arrow is, and it's in the Shephelah. And then we're going to move up north, still in the same geography, up to Megiddo. These are in that band of the low hills called the Shephelah. 
And I want to give you a look at that. This is a view of the kind of low hills and what it looks like in that part of Israel. We're looking down the Elah Valley, which is going to be very important in a minute because we're going to, we're going to tell about you a story that happened right there in that Elah Valley. But this is what the Shephelah looks like. This is what the area around our two sites for this lesson are. Well, back to our map because I want to point out a couple of other things about this. One is, you see the red lines here. You have basically two major north-south south routes. The first one on the left goes up that coastal plain, and it's called the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. You can imagine why that's a major trade route. Actually, there's a major interstate that runs literally along that same red line today. I mean, there's a reason that today's road is the same place that the road was back in the time of David. And that's because it's easy to build. It's the coastal plain. We're not going up and down and around and through mountains. They would, they would basically want to travel as easily as they could. They needed proximity to water. And so that passage along the sea was a major trade route. You can see it comes from Egypt in the south and goes to the various kingdoms in the north. What today would be Iraq and Iran. In those days was Babylon or Assyria. And so those great... Uh, economies, those great kingdoms, would trade with each other and you had to come through here. And so you'll notice that a lot of things happen here because that's where there are a lot of people, a lot of things to control. The other thing that you don't see on this map, but we're going to talk a lot about valleys running east and west. Because as you're going to make your way from the sea and you're going to go over to the other uh, trade route perhaps, which is on the far side of the Jordan Valley. It's over in, right on the edge of the desert, and it's called the King's Highway. And so those are the two big north-south routes. Well, if you want to get from one to the other, or if you want to get from the Via Maris, the way of the sea, and go trade to the east from there, on over into the Orient, on over into different areas, you need to go from east to west. Well, east to west is a little more problematic because there's that mountain range, the Judean wilderness. Then you go down into that huge rift valley and you come up out of it onto the Transjordanian plat uh, plateau. In other words, it's a rugged way to go. So how are you going to go? Well, you're not going to take your, all your livestock, your 18-wheeler, and you know all your stuff, and you go up and down mountains. You're going to find natural ways to get through. Well, there are key places that go east and west. They're valleys that cut through the mountains. And so you're going to see a preponderance of major events happen at those intersections where you've got a north-south trade route and you've got an east-west valley. I mean, it's just a natural place to put a fortified city. It's a great way to tax the trade. It's just going to be one of those places where people are inhabiting, right? There's a reason you know why there are more people in Oklahoma City with I-35 and I-40 than there are out in the Panhandle. Nothing against the Panhandle, but you know, you're going to have more population, you're going to have more things happening in this area. And that's what's happening here. Both of these sites are on the uh, intersection of that Via Maris trade route and a major valley that runs east and west. And so both of these sites have been inhabited for a long time. These two cities 
are both tells. And let me tell you what a tell is. It's T-E-L. A tell is a, an archaeological phenomenon when you have a site that's been lived on in for, I mean, this is hard for us to imagine. We live in a country that's not even 300 years old. But think about a site that's maybe been lived in for 2,000 years. I mean, you build a city there, wars happen, it gets destroyed, people go away for 50 years, the sand blows over, the dirt blows in, some other people come and they say, hey, this is a good place for a city, we're going to build there. Because let's face it, the reason you built the city there in the first place, it's near water, it's on trade routes, there's good farming around. I mean, the reason that made it a site for a city doesn't change. It's still a good place to put a city. So they kind of build on top of those ruins. They kind of fill it in, or nature had filled it in, and then they'd build on top of it. A couple hundred years go by, that city gets destroyed, or the people leave, or an earthquake happens and knocks down the walls. They'd fill it in again, and they'd build another one. And so a tell is literally a hill that gets built up over the centuries of the various cities that have been built there. And this is the picture of what you're going to say, look at this picture, I'm going to show you some pictures of these sites, you're going to go, that's exactly what it looks like. And so as you dig down in the tell, you're going to find city streets, you dig down more, you find another city street. And the lower you go, the older you get in history. And so you'll find, for example, one of these sites, Megiddo, has been inhabited from probably around seven thousand BC to about 586 BC has 26 distinct layers of cities and civilizations in it and so it literally builds up into a, a hill called a tell and as you dig down you can kind of date that date them going back further and further in time as you go so these are both tells they're both at really strategic places and really interesting things happen in both of these places. So let's start with our first site. This site is called Azika or Tel Azika. It's on the north-south uh, via Maris and it sits right at the mouth of the Elah Valley. Let me show you a couple of pictures of the site and then we'll talk about where this is. This is an aerial view and look, you can just literally see it kind of mounded up out of the out of the ground. This is an aerial view of Tel Azika. And then here's one standing beside it, kind of looking up at it. And so it's not that high, it's not like a mountain, but it's, it's impressive how over time it's built further and further up and they stand out. In fact, you'll be in many parts of the world. This isn't true just in Israel. This is true in a lot of places in the world. You'll be driving along and you'll look at it and you go, that's really unusual. There's this Tel or, or hill and you'll see a lot of times archaeological digs there, trying to find out what happened there. And that's what happened at both of these sites. The background of this area is pretty interesting. I'll show you, this is the map I put on your sheet, but if this is easier to see. Now we're blowing up this, that map I showed you before. We're kind of focusing in on uh, Azika, very near Gath. This is right on the border of where the Philistines controlled area which is the good land, by the way, on the left, Philistia. And then the Israelites were living over in uh, Hebron, and uh, Jerusalem wasn't Jerusalem uh, quite yet. I mean, it wasn't their city yet, but up in the mountains. They're living in the less desirable area. 
and there's constant clashes with the Philistines. What we're going to talk about is in 1 Samuel 17. I want to tell you the story of David. So this is the 10th century B.C. So this is around 1,000 years before the time of Christ. And the big conflict is with the Philistines in the West and the Israelites. Saul is the king, and Saul has failed to dislodge the Philistines. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One is a lack of faith on his part and a lack of unity amongst the Israelites. The other is that the Philistines were always more technologically advanced than the Israelites. The, and when I say technology, I don't mean that they had cruise missiles. What I mean is, is that they had armor and chain mail. They had actual uh, metal swords, you know, a better technology of sword and shields. They had the means of production to make war materials. Israelites are living in these scattered villages, very agrarian, not very industrial. And so they're just eking out a living up in the mountains. And so they're not well armed. And so they were constantly being attacked by the Philistines who would come and raid and take what they had and take slaves and go back. And, you know, a few years later, they'd come and raid the Israelites again. This is part of why the Israelites asked for a king, someone to get us organized because we can't live like this. So Saul is their king. Our story opens in 1 Samuel chapter 17 with a Philistine incursion. In other words, the Philistines uh, are coming out to attack again, going to make a raid in mass with the Israelites. And as we, our story opens, I want you to pay attention to the geography. So let me read just a little bit out of uh, verse, uh, chapter 17 and look at these places because you're going to see them right here. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and they assembled at Soka in Judah. And you'll see that town right there. They came out of Gath, which is one of their big cities, uh, and they come out and they assemble their forces at Soko. They pitched their camp between Soko and Azekah. So those are two towns. So in between those two little towns are where they pitched their camp. Saul and the Israelites assembled, came out to fight them, and they camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites occupied another with the valley in between them. Let me show you a picture, and you see the geography. You've got in between uh, Azekah and Soko. The reason this is happening there, that's where the valley runs. You don't want to fight on the top of a mountain. That, that's really not a particularly good way to fight the way they fought in those days. So they came into the valley and pitched their camp. This is a picture standing on top of Tel Azekah, and looking down the Elah Valley. So this is a picture Laura and I took there, and I, I'm gonna, based on 1 Samuel 17, I'll tell you exactly what's happening. If you see the hill on your left-hand side of the picture, there are actually two or three hills there on the left. That is where uh, the Israelites camped. And then you see the valley in between, and then the hills kind of goes up again on the right-hand side. That's where the Philistine army was. I mean, this is where that happened a thousand years before the time of Christ. And it's pretty easy to spot because the scripture's so accurate about telling you exactly, in this case, how they lined up for battle. So, I'm going to tell you this story, and we're going to launch out into this area and what happened here in 1000 B.C. 
Well, you probably know the story fairly well, but they line up on the two hills, but now the geography, you can see what's happening here. You've got the armies on the two hills, they've got the high ground. And so the Philistines send out their champion named Goliath, and he goes down into that valley every day and yells up at the Israelites and says, who is gonna come fight me? I challenge you. And he curses them, and he basically says, if, if you send down your champion and if I win, you guys will serve us, and if you win, we'll serve you. Now, he didn't mean that. That's a lie. But it still kind of galls a little bit that nobody's going to be willing to go down and fight Goliath. What he basically is saying, you know, is there nobody in Israel that's strong enough to fight me, one guy of the Philistines? If that's the case, how in the world do you think you're going to defeat us? Major trash talk, ancient trash talk, right? He's intimidating them. He is, he, and he is intimidating them because the scripture says in verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Well, you can imagine how equipped they are to go fight. They already have the heart taken out of them. And so they sit there day after day while this happens. And that it's happening right there. He comes down every day in the, and into that valley and issues his challenge to them. Well, you know the rest of the story young little upstart shepherd boy named David comes to the camp of the Israelites to bring some food to his brothers who are serving in the army. And he starts nosing around and saying, hey, why isn't anybody accepting the challenge of this Philistine? How in the world are you guys letting him get away with this? You can't let him talk about us that way. You can't let him talk about our God that way. So he goes to Saul and he says, I don't know about you guys, but I'm willing to fight this guy. That's an interesting little story as to why Saul lets him fight him, but suffice it to say, Saul says, okay. Because first of all, I mean, you probably said, oh wow, if David goes down there and loses, they'll have to be slaves. No, they were lying too. No one means this. I mean, stop and think about it. The Philistines come to invade your land. Are you going to believe what they say? Oh sure, you defeat Goliath and we'll serve you. Of course not, they're all lying. But the point is, they're going to send somebody down and say, hey, there's at least somebody here that's going, willing to come out and fight you. So what happens then is Saul says, you know, you're just not big enough. I don't, I don't think you can do it. How much do you bench press? But anyway, then he goes on, and David says, look, I'm just a shepherd, but the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And, David, and Saul finally kind of worn down says, go, and the Lord be with you. And so he says, though, Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put his coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head, fastened his sword over the tunic. Now, this is kind of interesting. First of all, there's no way this fits. Because Saul, if you remember the description of Saul, he's a big old handsome guy. And he's tall and he's big and that's part of why he's king. David, shepherd boy. You know, weighing in, 98 pounds, that's about it. All right, so he's not a big guy. Why do you think they put... Saul's armor on him because it's probably the only armor they had. The Israelites can't make armor. They had to have gotten it from somewhere else and their army, it's kind of like those of you that are fans of Braveheart, remember the scene where you get the English army comes in and they're knights, they've got all the uh, armor on and then you got across the way, again, valley in between, you got across the way, right, the Celtic guys, they don't have any armor at all, they got wooden shields, right? That's kind of what this looked like. 
So he puts his armor on David. David goes walking around. It's, it's dragging the ground. The sword's too long. And he says, I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff and he chose five smooth stones from the stream and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. So he puts off the armor, probably the only armor that they had, and he takes up what he's used to and he approaches the Philistine. So he goes out, Goliath's angry at him and says, you gotta be kidding me. They send you your little runt? You know, he says, as soon as I get close to you, I'm gonna show you, you know, what, what's gonna happen here. David, he's got some chutzpah, as they call it in uh, Hebrew. He says, you know what? You come against me. This is a great little passage. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then he begins to run towards him, and, and here comes uh, Goliath. David stops, puts a stone in the sling, boom knocks him out with it, cuts his head off. And then the scripture says, the Israelites are like, whoa, we are fired up now. They charge down off that hill. Philistines are like, whoa, their God, they weren't saying, whoa, gee, this David, who wants to ninja fight him? No, their point was, they must have some kind of powerful God because there is no way that kid just beat our guy. So they're demoralized. Israelites attack them, chase them all the way back to Gath. I mean, it's a huge, huge victory for the Israelites. Happened in that valley with those armies on those hills. But there's more to that story. And when you get to those places, you begin to see maybe a bigger picture. And there are a couple of lessons I just want to point out to you about this. One is simply this. This is not just about two guys fighting in a valley. It's not even about the economics of the Philistines wanting to basically, because they can, take the produce and the riches, what little they had, from the Israelites. This is a battle of two cultures. The Israelites are devoted to their God. The Philistines are devoted to themselves. I mean, they're polytheistic, and they basically have a complete different view of life. And so you see this collision of two cultures. It's a lot like the collision of cultures that we see today. We as God's people find ourselves more and more in conflict with the secular culture in our country. That's what Goliath is. He's a real person, don't misunderstand me, but he represents something bigger all through history, and that is the forces of the secular culture that defy our God. And if you stop and think about it, you just pick up the paper and you have to say that the secular forces in our country are verbally, literally, and openly defying our God. They are doing the modern equivalent of going down in the valley every day and shouting at God's people and said, your God is not a strong God. Our gods are stronger than yours. That's what's happening. And the culture seems overwhelmingly strong. I mean, if you put yourself back on that hill in the Israelite army and you look down at this guy, Goliath, you know, he looks like, right, a cross between Arnold Schwarzenegger and the ultimate warrior from Terminator. You know, I mean, he's, this guy looks completely unbeatable. And that's the way our culture looks sometimes. You think, how can you beat it? 
There's the media, there's the economics, there's the laws that, yeah, I mean, it's just like, wow, how can we have a chance against a culture that's so hostile, so in defiance of our God? And one of the great lessons about this story, and by the way, this is a place where Israeli soldiers go because the David and Goliath metaphor, that story, that real story, is still Israel's story, right? They still have neighbors all around them that taunt them, that defy them, and that threaten them. We do too. As God's people, we live in a culture that taunts us, threatens us, and is hostile to who we are. But the, I take courage, and I want you to also to realize this story is not just about David and Goliath. It's meant, it's written down for you and me to take heart. No matter how strong the culture seems, no matter how overwhelming it seems, victory does not go to the mighty in stature. What does David say to Goliath? He doesn't say to him, you come at me with a sword and so forth. I have better technology. That's not what he says. Or I happen to have a new strategy that's going to defeat you. My confidence is in my sling. That's not what he says. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, whom you have defied. In other words, he's not playing the same game. And that's my second lesson to you. You have a culture that seems overwhelmingly powerful. He's not playing by Goliath's rules. Saul was, right? Why do you think all those Israelites were afraid to go down and fight Goliath? They were playing the same game. And you know, Saul said, well, David, you're going to go. I guess you're going to need my sword, and you're going to need my helmet, and you're going to need it. And David says, you know, I'm not going to play by the same rules that Goliath is playing by. And there's a powerful lesson there for you and me. Because sometimes we think that in order to confront this culture, we have to be like this culture. And let me just tell you, that doesn't work. It wasn't going to work for David. Remember what he said? I cannot fight in these because this is not who I am. This is what Goliath is. He wears the chain mail. He wears the helmet. He's got the big old sword. That's not who I am. And so when we as God's people try to look like the culture so that we can invite people in, I'm going to suggest to you that that's not our strategy any more than David's strategy was to try to out-sword fight Goliath. That's a losing deal. He played a different game. He said, I'm going to do this differently, and I'm going to rely on God, not the strength of my arm, not the size of my armor, not my strategy or my skill. I'm going to trust in God, and I'm going to play a different game. I'm going to do something really different. God uses our natural skills and abilities, not overwhelming force. When you look down there, God didn't say to the Israelites, look, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you AK-47s, and we're just going to clean this thing up right now, right? So instead of manna from heaven, you've got M-16s from heaven. No, that's not the way God did it. He said, actually, I'll tell you what I'd like to do is we're going to turn this thing completely upside down. We're going to send the weakest guy out. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul's talking about uh, praying for God to heal him of some uh, disability, some difficulty, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul goes on, and really the cool part of this, he says, well, in that case, I'll boast about my weakness because when I am weak, then I am very strong. What's he saying? He says, 
In my weakness, it's when I rely on God, and that's the secret of being strong. And that's exactly what David said. And so my thought for us is, don't be discouraged that the culture seems overwhelming, and do not play that game. Let's go be who we are and take our message to the world. And, unlike, and like David, don't play that game. And then the final thought here, because there's a lot of powerful ideas that happen stimulated by that geography, is, is simply this. The message that you and I have is very subversive. It's not the norm. In other words, the Israelites are going to win in this battle they are going to, uh, over the next time period of David and Solomon, they're going to subdue the Philistines, and the tables are going to turn. Now it's the Philistines paying taxes to the Israelites. They're going to completely turn this thing upside down, and they did it by completely subverting, subverting the established order. In those days, the established order was, we're going to fight with the same weapons, we're going to fight in the same way. Whoever's got the biggest army wins. Whoever has the best technology wins. Israelites come, and David says this. He says, actually, here's my weapon, faith in God, and I'm going to rely on him, and I'm going to do it his way. That's very subversive. But the effect that it had was, when David won this battle, does anybody in the last 3,000 years who've read this story think, wow, the point of that story is that David was some athlete. No. What message do we get from that story? Wow, God is some God. You see how subversive that is? God is the ultimate trash talker in this sense. God says, I'll tell you what, culture, you show me overwhelming force. You just get everybody lined up here and look so powerful, and I'll not only beat you, I'll do it with one hand tied behind my back. I'll send a little 98-pound shepherd boy out to beat you. That's why the Philistines were devastated. If they'd sent out some six-foot-five kind of warrior that, you know, outmaneuvered him and, and ended up defeating him, they go, hey, well, you beat one guy, but you can't beat all of us. You send out a shepherd boy? What does that say? Whoa, their God is just messing with us. All right, we better get out of here powerful story, just a great story coming out of the Valley of Elah. A great story for modern times as well. I mean, the lessons of Goliath and David transferred directly to you and me. See if we have time for a question or two. Laura? Um, have there been any archaeological digs on these tells? Yes, there have been archaeological digs. Not so much at Ezekiah, but we're going next to Megiddo. Megiddo, significant archaeological digs. Like I say, 26 layers inhabited probably for more than 6,000 years. So yes, several archaeological digs over time. Very interesting discoveries. Not quite so many at Azika, but when we get to Megiddo, I'll show you a few. Okay? Well, let's go there because I want to make sure we have time to talk about that. So what you see in this story and what you see that what happened there is not just a historical event, but a metaphor for culture and God's clash with the culture of this world. And probably the ultimate clash with the culture of this world happens in this place, a town up in the Shephelah called Megiddo. Megiddo happens to be, again, an, an outpost. It's, it's uh, been a fortified city for a long time. It's on the north-south Via Maris, 
and it's also sitting in the Jezreel Valley, east and west. This is probably one of the great crossroads of history. There have been more battles in the Jezreel Valley than anywhere else around there, and there are great reasons for it. There have been battles from the Egyptians in the south and the various people in the north. Megiddo's been destroyed many times over uh, by warring armies. That Jezreel Valley has just been soaked in the blood of armies over millennia. It's just in such a strategic place. Let me show you Megiddo uh, a little bit. This Jezreel Valley, by the way, very fertile. I mean, it's, it's just a great place to be, even if it weren't at the crossroads. This is an aerial view of Megiddo. Again, you, it, you can see it's a tell. Look how it's built up. It's kind of circumscribed a little bit, and you'll see the latest layer of ruins on the top. But as they dig down, and you'll see a huge trench that goes down, and that's one of the ways to check the layers and go back in time. Here's another aerial view of Megiddo. And again, you can see how it's built up above everything else around it, and that's just from all those thousands of years of civilization. Megiddo has an interesting history. Here are the uh, city gates of Megiddo. I know that doesn't look impressive to you, but that's just a classic gate structure. Imagine, if you will, big walls. I mean, obviously that's not everything, but huge walls all around that tell. That thing would be very hard to conquer. You could take your soldiers and you could literally control that north-south trade route and control that Jezreel Valley. And in fact, whoever controlled Megiddo would become very rich and very powerful as a nation because you can control the trade and you can control the movement of people. The reason God put his people here is not to conquer the world, but it's also the place where you can disseminate ideas. In other words, all kinds of people are coming east and west, north and south in trade, Egyptians, Iranians, Iraqis, Persians, people from the Orient. And from there, I mean, what appears to be kind of a backwater place of the world is actually the center of the world in that time. And that's where you could disseminate the ideas. There's a reason that everybody in the world knew who Moses was, because all these stories come out. People would trade, come back with stories of who these Israelites were. That's just one of the city gates at Megiddo. Here's some of the ruins that date way before uh, Israel was there. This is back in Canaanite times. And these are, you gotta imagine these built up into big structures. That little rounded thing on the left of the picture is an altar, and it's big. I mean, a person is, I mean, that thing's way, way, way bigger than a person, but it's a huge altar that dates back to the Canaanite times. So when the Israelites got here, this is a thriving Canaanite city, and they're having, uh, they're sacrificing to their gods on that altar. So Megiddo, as I said, goes back several, several thousand years with uh, a lot of uh, civilizations, a lot of different civilizations there. But the one thing that it holds in common is it's at that crossroads. It's a key place that everybody wants to be. It's where the battles between civilizations happened. Megiddo is also an interesting symbol for us because we also live in a Megiddo. We, we don't fight our battles on geography in our culture. I mean, obviously you do it in a literal war, but we as God's people in our culture are fighting battles of ideas. Our Jezreel Valley isn't a specific place. 
Our Jezreel Valley is out on the internet. It's in the newspapers. It's in the television shows. It's in the ideas. And the things that battles that are going on in our Megiddo, our Jezreel Valley, are battles like this. What does it mean to be a family? Our culture has an idea about family that is hugely fragmenting our culture and our civilization. God's people have a different idea about family, about what it means, what it's for, what it's about. It's a very unifying idea. That's one of the battles that are being waged now in our Jezreel Valley. Another one is religious uh, freedom and freedom of speech. Our culture says that only certain ideas can be expressed in our Jezreel Valley called America on our internet, in our newspapers, and that competing ideas must be suppressed. We speak into that battle in a way that tries to preserve the freedom to, to spread that message. And here's the truth. Just like in ancient times, whoever was at Megiddo, their ideas were going to travel all around the world. In our culture, whoever wins this Jezreel Valley, this Megiddo, those are the ideas that are going to influence our culture. So I just want you to see that as ancient as this is and as interesting as this history is, this is God teaching us lessons about what we're doing today. Well, probably greatest thing that you know of of this place, Megiddo, and this is a view from the top of Megiddo looking out over the Jezreel Valley. It looks really fertile, but you can imagine how big an army you can get in that place, and there have been a lot of them there. Well, let me fast forward to uh, the book of Revelation. And the only mention of this place there in Revelation 16, the scene is this. God begins to pour out his judgment on the culture. This is David confronting Goliath. And as you read the book of Revelation, again, you go, wow, the culture is strong. Satan and the Antichrist are oppressing God's people. It's Goliath all over again. It's the Philistines all over again, only on a global scale this time. And right in the middle of this, it talks about this. It talks about the Antichrist, the beast in this language, getting all of the kings of the earth together. So gets all the cultures that are allied against God together and brings those kings together, and they gather them in a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon in Hebrew means this. Har means mountain, and Megiddo is a place. And so Armageddon means the mountain of Megiddo. Now, that's not a mountain by our standards, but trust me, it doesn't take much to, uh, to call it a mountain in Israel. But you see the point? It says, he bring the kings together in the place that's called the mount or the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon. This is the imagery for Armageddon. It's a place where many huge battles have happened. It's a crossroad of ideas. It's where God and the culture clash. And so in Armageddon is the place where the culture, where the Antichrist finally brings the overwhelming force of the world arrayed against God's people. And then in chapter 19, you see the battle itself. I want to play this out. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice he judges and makes wars. And riding behind him are the hosts of heaven. 
Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and all their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on his horse. Same story. This is Goliath come down in the valley saying, your God's not a very strong God. This is all the forces of our culture, all the forces of the world come down to Armageddon, back to that ancient place where these things happen. The, tr the cross between the trade route and the valley, the place where battles happen, the battle for ideas. And Jesus Christ comes, like David, not going to win with swords. He's going to win with the word of his mouth. And it says this, they came to make war against the rider, but the beast was captured and the false prophet and the two of them were thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, and the rest were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. This is God's judgment on the culture. With David and Goliath, he did it with this shepherd boy. At the end, when the power of the culture seems overwhelming, it's literally the word of God that overwhelms and destroys the culture at that time. That's Armageddon. That's Megiddo. And I want you to see these sites because as different as they are, they have a lot in common. And all these ancient things happened right at this crossroads of the plains and the valleys. And armies would struggle for this for control of the future, control of the culture, not just the economic culture, but the culture itself. I want you to understand the things that happen in the Bible, not just being dusty old tales. They're true stories that happened in real places. But the point of this is to relate to you and me today. We really stand on a Megiddo today in the sense that we're in a war for ideas. We're in a battle for our culture. And there's just some really key ideas. And one is do not be overwhelmed. One of the reasons for these stories is simply to say you think that that culture is overwhelming. Been there, done that. You saw how it turned out in history, so can you have confidence in God that that's the way it's going to turn out now? That's why that prophecy is there in Revelation. God didn't have to tell you that. That has nothing to do with whether you and I are going to be faithful and go to heaven and, and live for Christ. We don't need to know that, but we do need to know that. Why? Because God says, just like I've always done, my people will defeat the culture. And the other thing is, is we will do it in a way that does not mimic the culture. You go, wow, they've got the media, they've got technology, they've got sin. They've got all this really fun sin going for them. What do we got? The Word of God. We have love. We have forgiveness. We have compassion. We have unbelievable, uh, just ridiculous love and compassion for people. How in the world can that stand against this kind of hate and that kind of sin? And that's the message of this story. How does God win this battle? With the Word of God. That makes sense? I just passionately want you to see that these events happened, these places exist in a way for you today to be encouraged to go do, go be a David. Go spread the word of God. And I hate it when I see us embracing the culture thinking it's so strong, we're going to have to be like the culture and then we'll fight the culture. Just give us some more swords. That's not the way. God has ever fought the culture, and it's not the way we're called to fight the culture. Make sense? Powerful stories of real places, real events, ancient and future. Questions? Great. 
When our, think about that a little bit this week because I really like these stories to be interesting to you and you see the geography, you see where it happens and it kind of comes together, but also like us to think about what difference does that make to me? Because when you get up in the morning, Goliath is going to yell at you. Not literally. There's not going to be some guy standing out in front of your house saying, hey, you're a Christian, why don't you come out and fight me and let's see who God's stronger. But when you turn on your TV, you turn on your radio, you pick up your newspaper, there's going to be a cultural Goliath who's going to yell at you and he's going to defy your God. And I want you to take heart and say, we are the Davids. We have the Lord Almighty is what we take to the world. We take the gospel of peace and compassion and love to the world, and we will win. In our next lesson, we're going to go all the way up to a completely different geography, up in the Sea of Galilee. I'll show you where Jesus grew up. I'll show you where he probably went to school. And we're going to contrast it with one of the biggest and greatest Roman cities uh, in ancient Israel. And the ruins are unbelievably cool. So that's what we're going to talk about next time. So I hope I see you next week. Thanks, guys.